0: hello everyone and welcome to another episode of real crime stories i'm your host bill cannon i'm a retired nypd homicide sergeant from manhattan north and today i have an unbelievable guest he's a legend on the nypd retired chief 36 year veteran joe herbert and he had one of the most incredible police careers in fact i'm going to actually start the show with showing his walkout video
1: ...terrorism officers in the NYPD officially retiring today. Deputy Chief Joe Herbert has 36 years on the job and has cracked some of the city's biggest cases, including New York's copycat Zodiac Killer. And there he is. Today, dozens of officers showing their gratitude during the department's traditional send-off, known as a walkout. Seven on your side. Investigative reporter Danielle Lee got an exclusive interview with Deputy Chief Herbert to find out what it takes to solve big crimes.
2: It's a rewarding job, but it's dangerous to
1: Chief Joe Herbert's success came early.
2: I've had a great career.
1: Just three years on the job, 1984.
2: That was my first big one.
1: Fingerprint evidence would help him catch the city's Flatbush rapist, wanted for brutally assaulting seven women.
2: The trick is know, know the evidence and master the evidence.
1: Among fellow detectives, Chief Herbert reached superstar status in the 90s when he caught a notorious serial killer.
2: It came to me. I didn't come to it.
1: Herbert had studied letters written by the New York City Zodiac killer for years without a break. Then, while working as a hostage negotiator, he arrested Heriberto Seda, who wrote a confession. Herbert recognized the writing. At the bottom of the
2: uh, letters, he makes a symbol. It felt, uh, actually, it was a calm feeling because I know I had him.
1: After 9-11, the NYPD called on Herbert to help fight terrorist threats to the city.
2: I was one of the first uh, 25 to, to go in as a lieutenant.
1: He retires as the commanding officer at the Joint Terrorism Task Force.
2: The threat is constant.
1: Among those threats, last year's Chelsea bombing.
2: There was a lot of force, a lot of power in that force, in that, in that bombing, but we we're very fortunate nobody got killed.
1: But for all his notoriety, Herbert says he's most proud of making New York City a safer place to live.
2: Chasing bad guys down alleyways, hopping fences, being shot at.
1: And if Herbert had his way, he would keep going, even today, at 60.
2: I don't want to leave, but it's time.
1: Remarkable that a man who almost never became a cop.
2: I wasn't going to take the job. I had a job that was making a lot more money.
1: Retired as an NYPD grade.
2: It's to be the best never happened to me.
1: How
0: does that make you feel? Looking Very nice. Very nice. Thank you, Bill. It's a great, uh, what a great, you know, well, here, there you are, 36 years synopsized in about a minute and a half clip, you know, and it's got, yeah. I mean, you look back on it and it's like probably an unbelievable feeling, you know, and also to, you know, to start something and make it to the end uh, under your own terms, you know.
2: Yeah. No, I was, uh, I was proud to come on the job and uh, I loved every minute of it. And uh, I'll be honest with you, Bill, I'm retired now and I miss it, you know.
0: Yeah, well, you know, something—it's—it's—it's it's, it's something that's inside us all, you know. It, it, you yeah. get, it uh, Especially when you're the real police, you know. Not everyone <laughs> gets to be the real police, and you were ab- absolutely the real police. So, why don't we start out? When did you come on the job? What year? January eighty one. Eighty one. That was before the three thousand class, right? That a class well, eighty two.
2: Yeah, I think it was. My class was about twenty five hundred.
0: That's no small class either.
2: Right. They used to do two tours, uh, a one-day tour and one four-to-twelve tour. And we had to share a locker with another individual. So it was cramped quarters, you know, uh, coming on.
0: And that's, of course, the old academy on 20th Street and 3rd Avenue in Manhattan, right? Exactly. Prime real estate. Now (laughs) it
2: (laughs) is. They're
0: still still using it, but not as the police academy. So how how did you like uh, the training in the police academy?
2: Well, actually, I, I thought it was very valuable. Uh, You know, I grew up in Brooklyn, I went to uh, Brooklyn Tech High School, local kid, uh, no background really in policing, except what I learned from listening to my uh, older brother, John, who was a homicide detective, and a couple of his partners. Uh, So when I came on a job, I I, I learned a lot about uh, the actual uh, inner workings of the department, uh, how to fill out the reports, what reports are proper, the law, and the physical, uh, you know, getting in shape you know right. i needed to
0: <laughs> but you also knew about the police culture because your family your free brother taught you one of the you know one of the most important things they always tell you in the police academy just keep your mouth shut <laughs> That is so valuable right that, that little that little it, lyric, yeah. loose lips sink ships and that's the
2: best advice you can take yeah
0: that's exactly yeah. it you know and i didn't always take it i always had a big mouth you know <laughs> <laughs>
2: i was quiet i was quiet
0: that's yeah. good that, that, that's, that's probably why you thrived, you know <laughs> loose lips thing ships is so true but uh and then after you got out of the police academy, you went
2: to I went i went to n s u twelve which was uh based in the Seven one precinct in Crown Heights, Brooklyn. Now, I grew up in Brooklynville, and I never heard of Empire Boulevard, which is where the precinct was located, right, and I remember my first day driving up Empire boulevard with a couple of my my uh young buddies who were assigned there and uh you know, M- Empire Boulevard, all the streets are named after all the avenues across it are named after the cities in, in, in uh, New York State. Empire Boulevard, Troy Avenue, Schenectady Avenue, uh-huh. Utica Avenue, Kingston Avenue. And uh, it was a unique uh, precinct, in, in my view. Uh, one, because at the center of the precinct, was a heavy Hasidic Jewish uh, population. And they worshipped at a you know, very religious uh, synagogue for the whole Lubavitch uh, population on 770 Eastern Parkway. And it was always given special attention by the NYPD and the 71 precinct. And in that area was surrounded by uh, mostly uh, black and mostly black, some Hispanics. Uh, The black population then and still now was primarily uh, Caribbean. Right. Uh, uh, So you had uh, a mixture of American black, Caribbean Black and Hasidic Jewish in the uh, um, precinct. And uh, for the most part, everybody got along well. You know, there's always l- little instances of uh, a bias crime or, you know, right. some, some aggravating factor. But, but the, Hasidic,
0: uh, the Hasidic people were not a uh, passive people either. I mean, they didn't take it on the chin, right? They, they fought back.
2: Well, the passive, there were an insular uh, society there in the one. And they're passive when everything's going fine, but like you say, they'll fight back, you know, if if something happens. And um, you know, there were there were bits and pieces. We we actually had uh, one instance while I was signed there where um, they surrounded the seven one precinct, and they were trying to take it over, but uh, we were able to uh, lock the gates and uh, fight them
0: back. You know, that wasn't so, that wasn't Fort Surrender, right? Was that the six? it was it? The six eight or something?
2: Uh, Fort Surrender was a 6-6 six, six precinct. 6-6. Six, six. <laughs> yeah.
0: You were like, well, that's not a good thing to have that shirt, Fort Surrender, right?
2: Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. So, uh, you know, but uh, for the most part, there was no racial issues. Uh, you know, once in a while, you, you, you would come across something. Later on, after I was transferred out of there, they had a major racial incident. Uh, the Yanko Rosenbaum <laughs> homicide. Yes, right,
0: yeah. Uh, but I wasn't really Gavin, assigned then. Gavin no. Cato was the kid that yes. was killed by the Hasidic procession that went through exactly. a, allegedly uh, and that caused uh, a big racial incident in Crown Heights. You mentioned uh, NSU and to our, our listeners, they don't understand what that is. And what it was, was uh, you were assigned to what was called a neighborhood stabilization unit. And the rookie cops worked with what was called field training officers who were detectives and those squad sergeants and they trained the cops in the field. You want to touch upon that?
2: Well, they were invaluable. Uh, you know, we were all bright-eyed young young kids, uh, you know, who were really apprehensive about starting our careers. And uh, embedded with us were about 10 field training officers. And they were primarily uh, highly seasoned, highly experienced uh, detectives. And they would actually sit in a radio car with us, go out, supervi- supervise us on foot posts when we had a foot post. And they were invaluable. Uh, and, for the most part, you learn more from them, uh, just them being themselves, like, what they're not trying to teach you, because they do things uh, inherent to, to the way they were, they were trained right. and the experiences they had. And uh, it, it was very important how to deal with the public, how to be compassionate with the public, um, and, and how to be careful, too, because it's, at, at the time when I was assigned in '71, one uh, we were averaging about 75 homicides a year. And that was in like uh, I think one and a half square miles, right? So, and um, it was, so it was a dangerous environment, uh, but you really learn how to defend yourself. Uh, they taught you uh, how to enter buildings, go upstairs when when you chase chasing people. Um, it was a very good experience.
0: Yeah, you know when you get to the to the street, like you know you always get the hairbags and say, "Hey, kid, forget everything you learned in the academy," and that's not the guy you really want to listen to because even though most of the academy instructors aren't like seasoned street cops, what they're teaching you also will keep you out of trouble once you do hit the street, you know? And then of course, when you're trained by these field training officers uh, who are detectives that are highly experienced street cops, those are the guys you really learn the tactics from and uh, the paperwork and what you can do, what you can't do. And that's so important, especially, you know, as a young guy, you don't really know uh, what to expect.
2: I'll give you one example of how uh, invaluable they are. There was a motorcycle uh, chase in the 7 1. And this guy was flying up and down Rogers Avenue, all the way to Utica Avenue, into the 6 7 precinct next door, back into the 7 1. And then we were able to finally corner him and, and uh, arrest him. So I was going to hand him over to the team that uh, started the, the pursuit. And my field training officer, Bill Higgins, who actually lives down a block from me now, it's a small <laughs> world, um, good guy. Uh, he says, No, Joe, you're going to hand them over. They're going to take the collar, but we're going to follow them into the precinct and we're going to issue summonses of all the um, traffic observations that we made. You know, this right. guy took like 10 red lights in front of us.
0: Yeah, sure. So
2: I I never would have thought of doing that, but, you know, I was able to uh, give him 10, 10 red light summonses, uh, handed him copies of them to the arresting officer, and he goes down to uh, Central Book and it, made the case better against him because now you have an independent witness me uh summonsing him for his traffic infractions and uh you know i got some activity intensity right. you know
0: they, they can also list that on the online booking sheet all those right guys. exactly was, exactly yeah no that's that is brilliant it's almost like a freebie 10, 10 movers
2: i was paying <laughs> pay
0: them more answering to them
2: <laughs> i was the star of nsu 12 for that month <laughs>
0: <laughs> And then you stayed in the 7-1, right?
2: Right. So uh, I was fortunate enough to stay in the same locker that I had in the basement of the 7-1. And, uh, you know, at first I wanted to go to Manhattanville. You know, that was like the place to be. It still is, you know. Yeah. Uh, but they signed me to Brooklyn, and it was the best thing that ever happened to me. I quickly learned the job there because it's such a busy place. And you're responding to everything. Aid cases, assaults, car accidents emotionally disturbed people, domestics, you're really getting a variety of of the job and you're learning how to handle them and what paperwork to do. And uh, it was really valuable. Then I started acclimating myself within the command. And I started seeing like, you know, in the police department, and you know this Bill from from your time on the job, certain number of of cops and detectives are really active. And they're the ones that are really doing the majority of the crime. Other guys, they do their job, but they're not looking to make collars. They're not right. looking to, to, you know, to handle the paperwork and all that. So I started eyeballing these young detectives and, and senior city, uh, anti-crime cops who were really uh, making a mark. And I, I, I was watching them, and I learned a lot from them. And to this day, I'm, I'm great friends with, with all those guys, you know. Uh, Teddy Seeker, Paulie Dwenger. Uh, Danny O'Leary, Timmy Wilson. uh, I learned so much from these guys. Uh, Incredible.
0: Well, most of the guys um, that uh, work in Brooklyn, were they either natives of Brooklyn or from Long Island or Queens? Where were they from?
2: It was a mix. It was a mix, mostly from uh, Brooklyn and Queens and then some from Long Island. The 7 one is based in the central part of Brooklyn, so it's not really near any highway. So it's not really desirable by for the guys that live on Long Island because community. they have to take streets, you know, right. red lights and you know traffic and all that.
0: Sure, yeah. No, because like Manhattan North, most of the people they live north of the city, Westchester, Rockland. Right. you know, they live in the Bronx. Uh, very few on Long Island, but uh, right. most of them are from that. And also, you know, you go to Midtown South, a place like that in Manhattan. A lot there's a lot of cops from Long Island because they take the train and they're right at their precinct.
2: You know, exactly, exactly.
0: And especially when the train became free, <laughs> you know. Yeah, well, yeah,
2: yeah, 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 <laughs> Ten
0: t- 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 the shield, yeah. Yeah, so there, that was a, a beautiful thing. So you stayed in the 7-1 precinct, and at some point you worked your way into anti-crime.
2: Yeah, I was assigned to anti-crime uh, unit in early 1983, which was kind of quick, but uh, I was active. I made a lot of collars in, in patrol and uniform. And I uh, gave them what they wanted. You know, they wanted uh, activity and they wanted people answering the radio and handling the jobs, and, and I worked hard. Did you, so I was that,
0: at, did you think when you got assigned to the crime that you were ready for it, or were you a little nervous that you weren't? Wanted- I was a
2: little nervous because, you know, uh, me and then I worked with a, a, primarily with a, a cop named Dennis Schwab, my partner, for about five years there. And uh, we were young and uh, you know, we were a little bit intimidated, but you know we were readily accepted by by the senior guys and you know, uh-huh. they helped us out you know uh, what i so- always
0: thought you know uh, sorry to interrupt you what i yeah. always thought was so um interesting and that's just interesting but really even heartwarming that when you were a rookie cop or when you were sort of new that the older cops went they would go through a brick wall to protect you and if they heard you call over the radio they were there and you know as they would be there lights and sirens before you knew it. I don't know if that still exists today. I don't know if that same protectiveness exists for the for the new cops. You
2: know? I hope it does. You, you know, uh, like the officers, the senior officers would give you basic information, but it was so important. Know where you are. Know where you go, if you're going northbound, if you're going southbound, eastbound or westbound. Because when you get into a pursuit, whether it's a foot pursuit, or a vehicle pursuit, you have to communicate over the radio where you are, what way you're going, so they can, you know, try to cut the bad guy off. And it's such, you know, it's basic information, but I never thought of it until they told me about it. You know. Right.
0: Uh, well, it's the same thing. Is if you're really in trouble, it's not doesn't do you any good to yell ten thirteen. The best thing to yell is your location. Exactly. Right? People now to get to you. You know. Exactly right. That doesn't mean shit. I'm, well, all right, good. We know you're in trouble. Now, where are you, right?
2: Early on in my career, uh, there was a uh, senior officer who called a ten thirteen. He was chasing a guy into a building with a gun. And um, I responded. And it was the first time, Bill, that I ever realized the camaraderie that you're talking about. Because it was on Nostrand Avenue and Sterling Street in the 7-1. And I got to the corner, came out of the building, and... On Notion Avenue, they were coming against the radio cars with the lights and sirens were coming against traffic from the 6-7, the south. They were coming from the 7-7. They were coming from the east, seven three, seven zero. You know, if you needed help, you could get 500 cops in, in a matter of five minutes, uh, wh- 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 wherever you needed.
0: That's a great feeling, right?
2: Yes. And that's what I knew I was part of a team.
0: Yeah absolutely. yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. You know, I remember like when you, when you talk about funny stories. There was this young cop uh, when I was in the 2-4. He looked, he looked a lot like Bart Simpson, you know. Mm-hmm. And he was out on the footpost. And you heard him call over the radio. He just went, shots fired! Shots fired! So everyone, no one knew where the hell he was. Oh, you know, yeah, yeah. So every, they found him. They got they got there. And for the rest of his career, when he walked into the station house, people went,
2: shots fired! <laughs>
0: <laughs> he never looked yeah. it down, you know. Yeah.
2: <laughs> well, I had a, a captain, uh, you know, kind of. Discipline me a little bit, uh, I made a really good robbery collar. uh two guys ro- made a street robbery uh early on the midnight tour, and they were uh running down uh, Rutland Road towards Utica avenue we We grabbed them a, a gun and a, a, a sword of rifle and but I was yelling in the radio. I was nervous I was still uh basically a rookie, and the captain came over to me and he said, "Listen, you have a great collar here, but you're not you're not helping yourself you're not help, not helping people get to you you're not helping anybody to, to dispatch you." By yelling into the radio you know try to get command of yourself and uh articulate you know where you are what you have where you're going
0: right and and it was a valuable lesson you know so you learn it's uh it's easy to say that but when you're scared and when you're nervous and your heart's pumping and your are just pumping and you just chase someone you're breathing heavy so, you know you're not going to go over the uh central hello this is uh no, that's right, a crime, exactly. that's that's just, like crime 2784 could we have one unit you know <laughs> <laughs> yeah you're chasing armed robbers with guns you know? right right you're not going to come across on the radio like that you know because everything about your body at that time is screaming you know nervousness being scared adrenaline pumped and all of that exactly but you, you know it's a good lesson and you have to try to do that right right and you had the one year i i think i read it somewhere you had an unbelievable amount of gun collars with your partner
2: yeah my first year in the, uh in the anti-crime unit uh 1984 it was uh i worked primarily with uh, my partner dennis schwab for five years and we also worked with john mccauley uh for, for a few of those years and we were a great team we, we, we you know we were out there constantly We were the first ones out and the last ones back in uh, at the end of the night. And uh, in those days, crime was rampant. Uh, There was not much coordination between like the Narcotics Bureau, the detective squad, the vice squad, patrol. Uh, Later on in in my career, ComStat kind of brought that all together. And that's when you saw the numbers, the crime numbers start to plummet. But we were working just as hard prior to ComStat as we were at the Comstat, but uh, the results weren't really seen until Comstat came. Uh but we had great uh great great partnerships, it became lifelong friends. I still communicate with them all the time. And um we made a lot of good collars of the 129. So one of the, one caller in particular uh rings out right now, I'd like to discuss if you if you could. Yeah, sure. Yeah. So uh it was uh, in January of nineteen eighty three, uh eighty-four, I'm sorry, um, an off duty police officer was murdered in the seven seven precinct, which was adjacent to the seven one precinct. And what happened was he, he, he was uh it was a winter night, cold winter night, and he went into a social club slash pool hall, and he's playing pool. And uh, we realized later on from the investigation, he's playing pool, he reaches over the pool table, and at the time he had a shoulder holster and uh his gun was exposed when he leaned over the table and two bad guys you know robbers uh that uh, uh, were hanging out in the club saw saw the gun and they decided they wanted it so they waited for him to leave uh the the uh the club and they jumped him and they they robbed him of his gun he tried to recover his 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 gun uh they jumped on a car he jumped on the hood of the car trying to prevent them from escaping and one of the guys jumps out and shoots him uh in the face and kills him wow. his name was angelo brown he was a a year and a half on the job, a job a four cop a four precinct so for thirty days uh there was no leads uh that that went anywhere it was a real mystery uh so everybody was giving that general area pr- primary attention to try to come up with an arrest or something that might open up uh a case. Yo, could, I
0: ju- could I just interrupt you for one second yeah the, the pressure uh, on detective squads, especially in, in a police shooting, a police homicide, is is immense, right? And one of the things that um, is done, and it probably became uh, elevated once comps that happened, was that part of shaking the tree is to debrief every single damn arrest that you bring in, right? Because exactly. you get information on you know bad guys know other bad guys bad guys talk when they do things you know and that's how ultimately you know you can get information having said that continue no
2: Bill, you're absolutely right the information is on the street right so a good cop a good detective is going to make um individuals trust them and uh reach out to them if possible i mean i don't want to get off on a, a tangent here but uh, i worked with uh, a young officer came on with me uh Detective Steve Littman, he's still on a job, and uh, he's a first grader in the cold K squad now. But Stevie taught, treated everybody with respect, and he was nice to everybody, and it's just his natural way of being, you know? And uh, Stevie saw more homicides sitting home than he did probably uh, doing now. Right. because people trusted him, and when something happened on the street, they would call. him, And, uh, you know, Stevie would call us, listen, it was just a shooting on Winthrop and Flappish, and so and so did it, and, and he ran this way and all that. So you, you make those connections and you uh, identify these sources, and they want to help you. So, um, so getting back to uh, uh, the officer Angela Brown homicide, uh, we're giving it special attention, and we see a an individual on uh, Eastern Parkway and uh, Schenectady Avenue. It was like two blocks from the, the crime scene, and um, he saw us and he gave us a quick look. And usually when they give you the quick look, because you're in anti-crime, you're in an unlocked vehicle. Uh, sometimes they give themselves, if they're dirty or if they're wanted or they have a gun, they give themselves up by the way they be, react to you. Sure. So so we see this guy and uh, we make a U-turn and he's, he's off at the races. He starts running. And as he's running, I see him digging into his waistband and he's pulling out a gun. He throws it under the car, runs into a building close by. We apprehend him. We go back and we recover. A Smith and Wesson 38 caliber two-inch revolver, which at that time uh, was uh, the uh, favorite off-duty gun of majority of
0: cops. Right, the 38 Smith and Wesson Chief, they called it. Exactly. Yeah, yeah.
2: So, so we have uh, the individual Jeffrey Reeves, his name was, in the car and we're driving towards the 71. Uh, and I'm looking at the gun. I say to uh, my partner Dennis that night. I said, Dennis, this might be that cop's gun. You we're know, two blocks from where it happened. And it's a Smith uh, less than two inch. So Jeffy's sitting in the back and he says, that cop didn't get killed with the two inch gun. He got killed with the big gun, the, the one that he uh, wears in his uh, uniform holster. Now he was accurate, he was right, but nobody knew that. There was information that the squad kept it secret. Mm-hmm. It wasn't in the papers. So we get back to the 7-1 squad. And we make a phone call to the 7-7 squad. And like within 20 minutes, I had 40 detectives from the 7-7 squad in Brooklyn North Homicide. In the 7-1 and they took over Jeffrey you know the debriefing of him and uh it turned out that night of the homicide he was a couple blocks away uh, selling marijuana in a smoke shop and uh, he didn't know about the shooting but after the shooting happened two guys come into the uh smoke shop that he knew and they were trying to sell a gun so he says "I, i held the gun i could feel it was still warm so he knew it was recently used and he could smell the gunpowder, so uh, he made the decision he wasn't going to buy that gun. You know, he, that
0: gun was hot.
2: <laughs> that gun was hot. Yeah. So uh, he tells this to the detectives in the seven seven, and he also knew both individuals by their names, and they were able to identify them. And within twenty four hours, they had both individuals apprehended, and they recovered both Sir Angel Brown's or uh, uh, service revolver. So that was a a success. That. Uh,
0: now, was he killed with his own gun?
2: Yes. Wow. Yes. It's horrible. Yeah. Y- you know, uh, I'll just say this uh, an aside, but a lot of shootings over over the years of police officers, uh, uh, you know, they're shot with either the wrong gun or, or friendly fire. And then, of course, by, by the, the bad guys' guns too. Uh, young officers today... You have to be very, very careful uh, whenever you're around guns, including your own guns. Okay.